are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You ever been around anyone who was bragging about something they had uh, nothing to brag about? Uh, maybe it was, uh, you know, one of those group project things where you ended up doing all the work and there were two or three, you know, sort of dead weight people that, uh, you know, at the end of it got all the credit and said, man, we did a great job on that. We? Maybe you were one of the people that was just happy to be in one of those groups, and you were happy to get the grade. Uh, when we lived in St. Louis, uh, raising our kids for about 19 years, um, our boys were big sports fans and enjoyed the opportunity to cheer for the Rams when they were still in St. Louis, when they won the Super Bowl, and a couple of Cardinals World Series victories. I know that'll get a mixed reaction in this crowd. But what was interesting about those dynamics is... Uh, the, the reality of like cheering on teams from in front of your TV, right? Like how invested do we get in how that team is doing? And somehow it's like we're connected to them. Like I, I need to make sure I wear my lucky jersey to, to help, help them win the game. Or if, if uh, we're gathering around the water cooler at work the next day and we're all talking about the game and cheering and high-fiving one another, like we actually had something to do with it. And then somebody else is saying, oh, yeah, that was a great game. Oh, did you watch it? No, I didn't. Well, and then you look at them like, well, you don't have any reason to be cheering for them then. Like, why? Because you cheering them on helped them win? Like, you, you're cheering the TV didn't make any, but somehow we feel like we're identified with them. And if the team wins, we feel good about ourselves and good about our community. And, and if the team loses, we, you know, we can get depressed. There, there's something about boasting, glorying in, exalting, that, that's just kind of part of who we are as humans. There, there's, it's about uh, finding ways to manage the ways that people see us, the, the ways that people perceive our performance. Uh, boasting is about what we do to get noticed, what we do to get people to like us, uh, what we do to sort of manage people's expectations and perceptions of us. And, and Paul talks about this dynamic of boasting in this passage in Galatians 6. And he says there's one thing 
And one thing only that we really ought to be boasting in, that we really ought to be finding identity and meaning and significance in. Uh, If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. It's uh, on page 26 if you have your sermon journals. Paul is finishing up this letter that he's been writing to the believers in Galatia, wanting to help them sort through this tangle of different messages that they're hearing from some of these teachers that have come in and made them think that, you know, if they're Gentiles, maybe they aren't really as close to God as the Jewish believers. And he's trying to help them understand what the gospel really is, what the good news of Jesus really says about those kinds of divisions and those outward externals of righteousness. And in verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, in other letters, we see that Paul's custom was to dictate to a scribe. uh, And as God inspired those words, uh, the scribe was recording them through Paul. But then at the end, he would often take the pen and write his own note at the end, sort of a mark of genuineness to say like, this is actually my handwriting. In this case, there's something more going on there. When he talks about see with what large letters I'm writing to you, it it may be an allusion to a potential eye problem that Paul had, but I think it's maybe even more underscoring. Paul is saying, I have put this in bold print, underlined, and circled it for you because this is what I want you to get. I'm closing off this letter. If you don't get anything else out of this message, here is what I want you to get. This this is sort of his take-it-to-the-heart summary. And he says in verse 14, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does the cross become the thing that we boast in? And and what does that even mean? How does that work? What we're going to look at is uh, three points that I think Paul is bringing out in the message. The, The offense of the cross, the glory of the cross, and the power of the cross in terms of where we find anything to boast in. So let's jump in and start with that. Uh, in verses 12 and 13, the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul, again, is talking about these uh, so-called Judaizers, these uh, apparently Jewish believers who are telling the Gentile believers that Yeah, faith in Christ, of course, is is a way to know God, but to really know that you're on the inside, to know that you're part of the people of God, you need to add this external marker of law-keeping obedience. You you need to have this mark of covenant identity on your body. And, And, of course, the irony is that that was even applicable to less than half of the people in the congregation. I mean, it was just adult males. So apparently it was only relevant for adult men and women and children. I guess maybe they got carried along with the men somehow. How is that good news? These Judaizers are saying, you need to have this mark in your body to show that you fit in. 
And he's saying their motive is that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So I think what he's getting at here is if these Gentile believers are circumcised, that will sort of turn down the heat on any potential social or religious or cultural tensions that might arise from these followers of Jesus. Because if they just take on Jewish symbols in their body, then they can go back and say, look, see, they're just, they're with us. They're a part of Judaism. There's nothing new, nothing radical here. This is just par for the course. Nothing's changed. And the message of the cross, though, doesn't fit with that. Because the message of the cross is inherently offensive. And here's why. Because the cross is saying there is nothing that we can do that changes our standing with God, that makes him look at us differently. It's not about our obedience. It's not about our spiritual trophies. It's not about our performance. It's not about our law-keeping. All the things that we think contribute, that, that build up something for us to boast in, something that lets us think that we're good people, and we all do that, Paul says all of it is worthless. It all goes into the negative column. None of it gets you any closer to God. None of it makes God love you more because you're doing it. The gospel is offensive, Paul is saying, because your best, even your obedience, is not enough. And nobody wants to hear that. He goes on to say in verse 13, he's pointing out that those who even try their hardest to live up to the standards of the law can't do it. Even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. They only want to have you circumcised that they can boast in your flesh, that they can boast in making you a convert to them. The cross says that even your best efforts at obedience, at law-keeping, are so woefully inadequate that it took the eternal Son of God being crucified to deal with our mess. The sum total of our lifelong obedience and goodness and morality adds nothing to our standing with God. The only thing that we contribute to being saved and being brought into God's family is our sin. And our pride hates it. Our flesh hates it. The gospel's offensive because it exposes the insufficiency of any kind of outward measure of our righteousness or goodness. In in verse 12, again, he says, they want to make a good showing of you. It's a compound word that that it's, it's sort of like good face put together. It's almost literally hypocrisy. It's, it's putting on a good outward impression. Verse 15, though, Paul says, but neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. The, the outward signs, the outward measures that we can look at for how good we're doing, Paul says, are meaningless in terms of how God looks at us. But isn't that functionally how a lot of us live? I mean, we know the gospel says we're saved by grace through faith alone, but yet there's still this part of us that always sort of defaults to believing that God is happier with me. God loves me more. I'm closer to God 
when I'm obeying, when I'm doing a good job, when I'm keeping the rules. And so even though we believe the gospel, we're constantly walking around trying to make a good impression. I mean, some of us here changed clothes maybe three or four times this morning before even coming to church. Why? Because, uh, yeah, I don't want to look bad, but I, I'm more than that, I want to look good. I want to put my best foot forward. I want, I want people to look at this external and say like, oh, he's seems to have it together, relatively speaking. I mean, given what he's got to work with. We put on a happy face to hide the fact that we're maybe discouraged. That we, you know, just got out of the van after an argument with the wife and the kids about trying to wrangle the, wrangle the little ones into church or that I'm feeling stale spiritually or that I'm discouraged or I'm hopeless or I'm holding on to bitterness and regret and unforgiveness towards someone, but I've got to make it look like I've got it together. Outward markers of status, something that makes me look acceptable, look good to others. And our flesh so wants something to boast in, so wants something to feel good about itself. I mean, we we see it all the time in our culture and the things that we look down on other people for, for how they're living or how they voted or what policies or politicians or whatever they support or reject or oppose, as though that gives us some kind of a moral high ground over other people. And we just forget, ignore the fact that how in the world can there be moral high ground for us as Christians? The whole message of the cross is offensive. It knocks down any claim that we have to moral superiority. And deep down, I think we all struggle with that sense that God's favor goes up and down based on how we feel like we're performing. We may check the boxes of Bible reading or going to church or giving or serving or you know, being a good person, being a good citizen, serving in the community, and, and thinking that somehow God will like us better, that he'll be more inclined to answer our prayers, maybe, because of those things. And the cross says, no. No, that's, that's the offensiveness of the cross. And I, and I think Paul would suggest that if we really haven't felt that offensiveness, that if we really haven't deep down come to see that we are radically morally bankrupt, so messed up that it took the death of God's Son to save me. If I haven't really felt the offensiveness of that and recoiled against it, maybe we haven't really understood what the cross is about. It's offensive to our pride. But the good news is the glory of the cross that comes with it. Far be it from me, Paul says in verse 14, to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a reason for boasting. There is a reason for having something to glory, to exult in, which is what some of your translations may say. Why would Paul boast in the cross if it's so humiliating to us? Maybe just stop for a second and try and enter into Paul's world 
in, in a world of honor and shame and how deeply shameful the cross was. It was for the absolute worst, vilest criminals and offenders. In polite Roman society, you didn't even use the word cross. They would say the unhappy or the unfortunate tree. It was just something you didn't even mention. It was so outrageous and ugly and undesirable. Paul's, of course, not boasting in the cross as a a means of execution. He glories in the cross because it's in the cross of Christ that God pours out the measure of his love and undeserved goodness to us, to people who are so bad off that nothing else could possibly save us. That's what the cross is saying, and, and we don't appreciate the glory of the cross until we really feel the offense of it that I am so hopeless and so messed up that it took God himself sending his own son to to take on human flesh and enter into this world that we have ruined and made a wreck of and living the perfect obedient life that we ought to but don't live in order that he could be the savior, the, the one who could alone reconcile us to God by his death in our place on the cross, the death that we deserved. That's that's the glory of the cross because he became our substitute, taking our sins and suffering and dying for us. The cross is glorious and beautiful and freeing because there's nothing that we can add to it. There's nothing that we should try to add to it. Jesus has done it all. We didn't earn a standing in God's presence, a place in his family by our obedience, and we can't lose it by our disobedience. We weren't worthy of it before we received his grace and kindness, and we don't have to be worthy of it in order to keep it and hold on to it and live out of it. We receive it, we glory in it, and we live out of it. That is the Christian life. That's what it means to know and follow Jesus. And, and Paul has a couple of things going on here that, that show the glory of the cross. As, as he says in verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. What it means is that our identity, our standing with God is not defined by our law keeping or by our law breaking. Do we really believe that? That neither obedience nor disobedience changes how God looks at me in Christ. For most of us, we're identified so easily either by our successes or by our failures. For some of us, we we really can feel the weight of failure and regret and things that we've done wrong, and, and and they can come back to our memory so often, and it's so easy for us to see all the things that we should have done or we wanted to do or we didn't do the right way. And that can become our identity, a label that we put on ourselves in this sense of nagging disappointment in ourselves that God surely must feel too. Or for others of us, really, we end up boasting, drawing our identity in kind of the whole American success system, right? That everything our culture and our economy is built around being financially successful, athletically successful, having the perfect family, professionally successful, academic success. 
but none of it lasts. It it never lasts, right? Because there's always something else. There's always somebody who's doing better. We we always have to stay on the treadmill to prove ourselves. And and so we, we just keep cycling back and forth between success and failure and success and failure and pride and despair and pride and despair based on our performance. When our kids do good and they get good grades, man, I'm a great parent. And when they make bad choices, when they make things that I'm embarrassed of, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm a failure. How is God ever going to fix that? When you get recognized at your work, when there's a pat on the back, a good performance review, man, this is great. I love working here. And if there's a bad performance review or conflict or tension or, or your bosses are disappointed with you, man, this is terrible and I hate it and I got to get out of here and I, I'm, I'm a mess and a failure. When your social media post gets 2,000 likes, wow, look at how important I am. I'm an influencer now. And when it gets two likes, you know, it's, oh, man, I really worked at that. How come nobody appreciated me? And insecurity rushes in. The glory of the gospel in the cross of Jesus Christ is that none of that matters in how God looks at us. We already have the full and unchanging love and acceptance of God. And do you see how how that dispels the deep insecurity that almost all of us walk around with? And it also deactivates the pride that we all tend towards. That's the glory, the beauty of the cross. it's, It's a radically freeing humility, you see. Because your identity as a daughter or a son of God is not dented by your failures. It's not polished by your successes. That's the fresh air that the gospel breathes into our suffocating souls. He goes on to say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only a new creation. I think what Paul's getting at here is not just that we are individually new people in him, but that we are actually part of a new creation, a new order, a new way of living. Paul is saying that in Christ, everything that the the prophets were looking forward to in the Old Testament, God pouring out his spirit on his people and writing his law in their hearts so that they would obey from the inside willingly, that hasn't happened fully, but it has actually started now. It's not just at the end when that happens, but but the new creation in eternity has broken into the middle of the story. And we are a new humanity recreated in God by his spirit. That's why the the future age has broken into us. and, And Paul can say that now in union with Christ in verse 14, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. In Christ, we have a new relationship to this world of sin and death and evil that's set in opposition to God. It no longer owns us. It no longer defines us. It no longer controls us. We no longer owe it our allegiance. Harrison Barnes is a professional basketball player. Uh, He was traded from the Dallas Mavericks to the Sacramento Kings a few years ago, which is not unusual, except in this case, the unusual part was that he was actually traded in the middle of a basketball game. Literally, 
in the middle of the game, he got news that he had been traded from the Mavericks to the Kings while he was in a game for the Mavericks. And so, you know, he just, he has to go over to the sideline and sit down. He can't play for the Mavericks anymore because he's not on their team. And he lives out the rest of that game sitting in the arena in Dallas wearing a Mavericks jersey, even though his allegiance and his identity are now being a Sacramento king. And that's kind of a picture of what it's like as Jesus' people in this world. We've already become members of a different age, of a new human community. We're not there yet. We're still living in this arena, but we're not playing the same game as everyone else. We're not playing it the same way. We have a totally different perspective on it. Now he belongs to the Sacramento Kings, and he's like, well, it doesn't really even matter whether the Mavericks win this game or not, because I'm not identified with them. I don't get wrapped up in the things that the Mavericks get wrapped up in. I don't have my identity in it. We care about what happens here, but we look at it from a different perspective and a different orientation because we have a different identity. That's the glory of the cross that frees us to be in this world, but not of this world. Beneath every way that this world wants to own you and identify you and label you and try and give you something to boast in and tell you to scramble after it, underneath all of that is the cross of Christ. It gives you true security and life and freedom. And that leads to the power of the cross. The power of the cross. God did not leave us in this world in our own power to sort of muster up our energy to live out this new life. What was impossible for us to do, God sent his son to do. And then to leave his spirit in us to enable us to grow us into the image of Jesus. If you are in Christ, the new age, the new life of God's spirit has come to you. And you have God's life, God's power, God's presence dwelling in you. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and on the Israel of God. The rule or standard refers back to this new life, this new creation in verse 15. He's saying all those who are identified with Christ in this way live in a way to keep up with that reality. That's the same language that Paul used back in chapter 5 when he said, Therefore, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us live and walk as God's new people by the Spirit. That means bearing the fruit of the Spirit's work and presence in us and love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Church has to be a place where it's safe to not have it all together, where people don't have to come in and wear a mask and pretend like they've got it all figured out and everything's great. We have to give grace to one another just like God has given grace to us that allows us to look at everyone as people who are genuinely new, even if we're not totally new yet. It makes us patient with one another. It makes us slower to judge, slower to look down, slower to make assumptions about people. 
The power of the cross means bearing one another's burdens, too. We heard that from Paul earlier in chapter 6, and here again in verse 17, the end of the verse, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, there's a great little bit of humorous irony there because these Judaizers want to put a mark on the bodies of the Gentile believers. Paul's saying, no, I have the only marks that matter, the marks of being identified with Jesus in his suffering and in his rejection. I'm making my body, my life available to bear the burden for others for the sake of the gospel. We've seen reflections of that burden-bearing love on display this week, haven't we? Heroic self-sacrifice of men tearfully sending away wives and children to safety so they can stay behind and defend their city, their home, their future. The willingness of strangers to meet Ukrainian parents at border crossings to take their children for them and care for them, to offer them homes and and food and safety and shelter. Kindness shown even to young Russian conscript soldiers, 18-year-olds, who it turns out were scared and had no idea what they were doing, some of them, and, and the Ukrainians set up phone lines for them to call their parents back in Russia to let them know that their kids are actually okay. That doesn't mean that everything that's being done there is out of a a knowledge of Christ, but it is a reflection of the self-giving, burden-bearing love that is at the heart of the cross and the heart of the gospel. In an age of tribalistic spats, in a day when people hate their neighbors over policy divides, when when, when people are fighting over rights more than responsibilities, we see in Ukrainians what burden-bearing love can look like. And, And it's humbling to watch, and it's a humbling, sacred thing to carry up that burden in prayer with them. And And that's what I want us to spend some extra time today doing. We're going to close our service with a little bit of extended time, gathering together in our families or in our groups to to pray in some specific ways.